We are now on day 26 of National Podcast Post Month. Ladies and gentlemen, geeks and geekettes, yes, day 26 of NAPOD POMO. Four more days to go. Today, for our Geek Rule Radio anthology, we are going to do something a little different. We are doing another tribute show, but what you're about to hear is culled together from two separate shows that we did. A few years back, we paid tribute to the late, great... Generalissimo, Mr. Excelsior himself, Stan the Man Lee, or the plethora of names he went by over the years. But we wound up doing two tributes, one with my good friends at Geek Watch One, their podcast, and then, of course, also with Train on our own show. And then Train and I also paid tribute to the country music legend Roy Clark, who actually passed away that same week, 2018. So... It's a double shot of tributes for Stan the Man Lee, as well as a tribute to the late, great Roy Clark coming your way. So the first two parts are going to be tributes to Stan, and then the final segment will be a tribute to the late, great Roy Clark. I hope you folks enjoy it, and I'll talk to you at the end of the episode. Geekville Radio. Excelsior! Well, it's with a heavy heart that we begin this episode of Geekville Radio. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, geeks and geekettes. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville Radio. We were going to be all ready to do a standard episode talking movies, games, and such as we usually do here. But alas, we were all disheartened at the news of the passing of the late, great Stan the Man Lee, the running force behind Marvel Comics for all those all those decades. You really can't say enough about him, but fortunately, I don't have to talk about Stan Lee alone, although I think myself or just about any other reasonable geek could. Joining me from suburban Ohio, we've actually touched base a couple, four, a couple times before on previous shows. Mr. Ken Rose, we were supposed to meet up at Con on the Cobb, but unfortunately, it didn't uh, turn out uh, to happen. That was my fault, so I do apologize, but I hope things are going well up there in Ohio. Yeah, Con uh, of the Cobb was fantastic this year. Uh, unfortunately, we had the news of Stanley's passing the day after, but um, and we missed having you out here, man, but uh, yeah, it, this is going to be an interesting show. Mm-hmm. So we have joining us as well, kind of your partner in crime, so to speak, on the Geek Geek Watch one cast and also your uh, DC Superpowers uh, tag partner, right? Well, um, one of them, yeah, the one is from Geek Watch one and the Mighty Marvel Geeks. That's mm-hmm. my buddy here, Kylan. Say hey. hi, Kylan. All right. What's up? And well, uh, I know the last but not least uh, joining us here, I know this is the first time we've done any, any show together. We, we met a couple years ago at a con the Cobb. Uh, I know your first name. I don't know your last name. Your first name is Vernon. So, Vernon, please introduce yourself. I'll take that. It's Vernon uh, from DC Superpowers Podcast, Ken's Partner in Crime. Uh, yeah, this was really sad. Um, I know we're doing a DC podcast usually every week, but Stanley was like so good. Everyone in the comic world, nerd world, pop culture universe, we miss him. Uh, he's going to be missed. We're going to miss seeing his face on the big screen, but we'll figure out how they're going to set that up. Disney does have the company, so we'll see what happens. Yeah. So I guess we'll kind of start out with, um, I hate to say the norm, but 
I, obviously, we, we've all been comic fans most of our lives, but I really didn't kind of put the two and two together until probably the mid-80s when I would have been around junior high as far as the length or the amount of contributions that, that, that Stan had. So, Ken, I guess I'll start with you. Um, I guess the first Marvel comics that you would have read, um, I know for me, I started out with G.I. Joe and Transformers, and then I kind of went into the Marvel superheroes after that. But did you have any titles that you knew gr- growing up? Because when we were growing up, Stan had already become the publisher. He really wasn't doing much writing. Well, when I, the way I got introduced to Stan was I never really read much Marvel. I've read some since then, but I'm still, I've always been a DC kid. But my earliest superhero memories are the Super Friends and Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And mm-hmm. that's where I learned who this guy named Stan Lee is, because he was the narrator for Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And from yeah. there, you learn, wait a minute, this guy actually runs the entire company. Mm-hmm. Now, Kylan, what about what about you? Is it a similar story with you and Stan? Or? Oh, no, no. I've been, read, I've been reading Marvel ever since. I don't know. 75, 76. I started off with uh, Submariner, uh, mm-hmm. Fantastic Four. In fact, uh, my mom actually would buy me subscriptions to uh, Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. So I, I look forward to getting that, that book in the mail every month. And I would read uh, Stan's Soapbox and the Bullpen Bulletin. So mm-hmm. I would get to sort of, I was sort of like an insider to all the things that were going on in Marvel. Um, and I remember uh, growing up watching, looking back on it now, it was a terrible, terrible show, but the live-action Spider-Man. I uh, oh, loved watching yeah. Incredible Hulk. I loved uh, the animated Spider-Man series along with Spider-Man mm-hmm. and his amazing friends. And also along that time, there was the anime, there was an, another animated Hulk series, mm-hmm. uh, Fantastic Four and Spider-Woman. So I, I was like, he was Stan. People called him Stan the Man, but I, I kind of started calling him Uncle Stan. Like even now, mm-hmm. even now I call him Uncle Stan. Uh, so I, I, he, he was an integral part of me, of my childhood on. So yeah, so yeah, Stan has always been there for me. Okay, Vern, you get the last word to start things off here. Um, Growing up in the 90s, as Kylan was saying, that uh, animated Spider-Man series that came out in the 90s, mm-hmm. uh, Saturday morning cartoons was my thing. Um, I think it was the season finale of the whole show. It was like a, the Spider-Verse. They even were doing it back then, and uh, there's these different realities of Spider-Man. And one of the uh, Spider-Men that came into the show was saying, I'm just the actor that plays you guys. Like, I'm, I'm just the real-life guy. It's like, my world, you're made up, but I'm just an actor. And... uh our main universe Spider-Man for the show was like, but I want to cre- see the guy that made me in this different world. And he goes the, to New York and he flies the actor or swings the actor on his back and they head uh, to Marvel headquarters. And in uh, cartoon form, you saw Stan Lee. And he was like, wow, you're my greatest creation. You can't be real. He's like, I must be dreaming. Then he swings him around and tells him about his world. He's like, wow, I can't believe I made this universe and you actually exist. That was my first time really uh, getting to know like Stan Lee as a Stan the man. And uh, from there on, every time I saw him in magazines, comics, TV, movies, he his voice just reconciled with me. Every time I heard him, I knew who he was. And that's how I grew up with him with Spider-Man. And, of course, that was his favorite character. So, uh, yeah, Stanley left a big impact on me as a kid from the 90s. Yeah, absolutely. I know I had met Stan. It was August of 1998, I want to say. It was... 
I think it's back to being called the Chicago Comic Con now, but it was Wizard World Chicago at the, at the time, mm-hmm. and Stan was one of the guests of honor, and he he was just signing comics, and uh, I, I know I'm gonna show my geek card a little bit here, but I had a copy of Spider Man 129, and anybody who knows the history of Spider Man is that's the first appearance of the Punisher. So uh, yeah. that was what I brought for, for stand assigned. So that's kind of my, whatever you call it, geek ruler or whatever uh, ego you want to say is I got the first Punisher appearance uh, autographed by Stan Lee. But I could also remember that 1998, so that would have been 20 years ago. So he would have been approximately 75 years old. He definitely had a young man's handshake when he, <laughs> when he shook my hand. And it was kind of funny because... Uh, my friend and I were wearing a NWO shirts, so we kind of had to try to explain the NWO to Stan Lee, which was which was kind of odd. But uh, did you guys ever meet uh, Stan at any point in your in your lives, even if it was just for a signing or a handshake or something? I wish, I wish I, I could have met him. Mm-hmm. I was in a panel uh, at Dragon Con with him. Uh, I think it was about maybe three years ago. Um, and so it was one of the big panel rooms. So I got to be in the same room with him. I mm-hmm. didn't get to shake his hand. Uh, but still, to, to share a space with him. Uh, a five-year-old Kylan was uh, doing backflips because he was one of my heroes. So I didn't, get to, I didn't get to have a one-on-one with him, but I felt like what I got was, was enough. Yeah, yeah. You, you got to spend that amount of time with the baker effectively, right? Yes. Yeah. Man, um, the wow. only other thing that I could uh, bring up about seeing Stan in person do something was uh, a year or two ago at C2E2, uh, he did a panel with Frank Miller. And I heard about that one. Yeah. And it, it was pretty funny because uh, obviously Stan with his age and such, he was having trouble hearing things uh, uh, here and there, but boy, could he roast and because he was grilling Frank left and right, and Frank would kind of toss it right back. And Frank would be talking about how he was reading Hulk uh, as a kid in the 60s. And he said, they, they made the Hulk gray, and then all of a sudden, we, I opened up an issue, and the Hulk's green. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? So the host said, so Stan, why did you make the Hulk green? And Stan, just without missing a beat, says, because I knew somewhere it was going to piss Frank Miller off. <laughs> I, uh, I wish I could find a... A proper recording of that, but alas. Yeah, I heard he was really quick-witted whenever it came to those cons. He just snapped. He had something to say right back. Right. I, uh, a couple years ago, at, uh, it was the first year of, um, what was it, uh, Hall of Fame City Con, which is uh, a comic book convention down in Canton, and mm-hmm. uh, Jim Steranko was there. Okay. So, now, I'm a huge Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. fan. So, I, I how many times do I get an opportunity to meet the man? So mm-hmm. I got to meet him and he told the story because apparently, I guess the woman that he was dating, I believe she was like the secretary to Stan <laughs> mm-hmm. and said that Jim is famous for like these almost movie poster style yeah. uh, panels, Covers right? and such, yeah. Covers and everything, right? So he was doing these cover, these style covers and and so he was told, and he said the editor, I'm thinking that it hadn't been Stan. He says, why? He says, 
why are you doing this crap? Nobody would buy this. So go change it. Go change it. Nobody wants this, right? And so he's like, well, okay, fine, whatever. So he started doing the covers like pretty much everybody else is doing covers. But then what he decided to do was kind of take liberty with the, you no, know, with the interior and kind of would do these type of, uh, this type of art in the splash pages, right? And he said that uh, all of a sudden started to get all these letters and his girlfriend tells him, Jim, you're getting all, you're getting all these fan letters. They really she said, yeah, because she was, uh, she was the one that would get all the mail. And so she would know, so she could tell, tell him, she knew which artist was, was getting what and what kind of buzz, that sort of thing. And so all of a sudden he started to get noticed and the fans are loving to work. Next thing he gets called into the editor's office and says, oh crap, what did I do? He says, you remember those covers I told you to, to, uh, to not do? He said, yeah. Well, I want you to start doing them. He's like, well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> One thing I always noticed in the Marvel books was Stan almost had, like he had his finger on the pulse of the Marvel fans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to make sure that Marvel was giving to them what they wanted. I could see them at first, like, nobody wants this. Nobody wants this. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, we're loving this stuff. And they, oh, well, I, I could be wrong. His wife helped him with that one. And I think that story, because there's a tie in there, because he was, uh, I think he was like going to get fired soon or laid off or something like that. And then his last book he was going to write, I think it was something with the Fantastic Four. And he was like, I don't want to do this. They might tell me, no, I'm going to leave anyway. And they're probably going to turn me down for this. And she said, well, Stan, if they're going to fire you anyway, might as well just do what you want to do, not what they want. Because they were telling them to put in all this other crap you don't have anything for. And fans weren't going to like that. So he said, let me just come with something new. Made the Fantastic Four. And that's when it was flying off the shelves. And they're like, what's going to keep you? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he did tell the story during that thing with, with Frank Miller where, and I'd heard more or less the story before, but it, it obviously Stan tells it better. But there was that amazing fantasy because in the 60s um, and even before, there were those comics that were essentially, what would the word be? Um, An anthology? Yeah, anthology type things. Yeah, where it would have self-contained stories that might not even have the same characters from issue to issue. They, they just might have three different short stories in them. And that's, of course, where Spider-Man came along because Stan had the idea of Spider-Man because he just thought like Bug-Man or Ant-Man or whatever just didn't send. Of course, obviously, there was an Ant-Man later, but uh, he had to fight a little bit to try to get Spider-Man. But Amazing Fantasy was getting canceled anyway. So the publisher of the time said, oh, OK, just just put in the Spider-Man thing in it. And then lo and behold, it was a huge hit. And I think that really is what got his foot in the door, obviously, is not the proper thing because he'd already been working at Connick since, uh, since the 30s. But I think that's really where he seemed to get more of the recognition, uh, main writing duties, I think. I don't, I don't, I don't know. That's, that's my words, not, not uh, somebody else's. But I, I think that seems to be kind of Spider-Man being the big hit, I think, is really what kind of got him noticed as far as his writing. I think Kylan kind of hit it on the nail on the head earlier. Like Stan started in the 40s writing mm -hmm. comic books and working with in the comics industry. But you notice that he didn't make a huge splash until the early 60s. Well, so he had actually taken all that time of seeing the Golden Age and seeing the Golden Age die and the Silver Age start to come up a little bit in the 50s. But um, he recognized, I think um, he saw what the culture was looking for. And if you look, there's a um, 
giant shift in comics around the early 60s. Yeah. Right mm-hmm. about when Marvels took off with Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and stuff. And I think um, you cannot understate that if Stan Lee hadn't stepped in in the early 60s with the idea, with the changes he made. And um, the, when did Marvel actually start, uh, actually become Marvel? Island. I believe it was know? 61, I think. I think it was 61. I got a book over here, but I believe it was like 61. Yeah, yeah I, I remember in 86... There were those issues for that that matched the month of the 25th anniversary that had like the, a close up of whoever was one of the main characters in the title. And then it was all around these crowdings of other Marvel titles. Of course, now Marvel's trying to say they're 75 years old, but who might argue? Well, that's, has been yeah. around that long. They just renamed themselves. Yeah, they right. were around for like six, 79 years if you go with Timely. But Marvel, you guys are right, was uh, 61. Right. Well, they actually mm-hmm. became what we know it is today. But, right. um, with the creation of Marvel Comics, Stan Lee f- figured out what people wanted. And then DC jumped on right after that, pretty much. And um, th- then the battle really started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's got to think of the Golden Age. The only one that survived in its original incarnation, really, is DC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, I think, is Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. Yeah. Basically, three of yeah. them ran forever. You can't, you can't, those are behemoths. As a writer, when he teamed up with guys like um, Kirby yeah. and Dino, they were unstoppable in the 60s. Oh, right. mm-hmm. Stan brought a, a degree of humanity to the characters because Peter Parker was, was, was a big nerd at a time when it wasn't cool to be a nerd. How many teenage boys or, 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 or help, help people, period, have that moment where they feel, they feel like an outsider? Oh, and story of my life. <laughs> but then, yeah, you know, <laughs> All and of us then, speak for that thing. And, mm-hmm. But then life gives you this amazing gift that's born out of a tragedy. And, and then you're given this mandate that with great power comes great responsibility. Or you look at something like the X-Men, during, especially during a time where there was so much social strife going on. And you have Dr. King and Malcolm X, which mm-hmm. becomes Professor Xavier and Magneto. Maybe America wasn't ready to directly talk about racial tension or gender issues or whatnot, but they, they could t- talk about how mutants are treated. Uh, there, there was like, really, when you think about it, Marvel, because of Stanley and Ditko and Steranko and all those great, Marvel was doing very progressive things that you weren't getting that on television. You weren't really getting that on the radio or in movies. And how many people would expect to have that level of social commentary in a comic book and it mm-hmm. continued and i'll be honest with you when i was uh growing up in the south in the 70s i was told you don't associate with those people those people don't associate with you but i opened up a comic and captain america and falcon are best friends and they're fighting crime and mm-hmm. luke cage and iron fist they're best friends they're fighting crime and iron fist is in a relationship with misty knight and it's treated like a real relationship. It's not treated as a uh, comic relief like you get on the Jefferson. So I, it was weird. Like I actually paid more attention to what I was learning from the comics than what I saw on TV because, in a way, that kind of mirrored my life more because I could relate to those people. And looking looking back on it, uh, Stan Lee, he really put himself out there. Because that, that that was either going to be a huge success or a total failure. But he took a gamble and look at us now. Yeah. Same thing with uh, Daredevil. 
Yeah. Like, we're talking about uh, with the X-Men, he was trying to show the diversity in that around the civil rights movement. And he was like, I don't know if it might it'll work. It might not, but this is what I'm going to go for it. And it worked. We were watching like a bonus feature on the Daredevil DVD with Ben Affleck. Yes, I watched that. I have that. Uh, <laughs> special features <laughs> were really interesting because he said he was worried. He knew where his heart was coming from. He said he's going to make a comic book character of a blind man. And he said, oh, wait a minute. I hope no one gets offended because it's a blind character. And he don't know if they'll take offense. They're like, I can't do that. So he's like, we're going to put it out there, but I hope they get my meaning. And it did. It was a bit kid, too, because it was like there, he was showing no matter what uh, problems you're going through, no matter um, what you're born with, not born with, something happens to you. Someone's going through it no matter what, but it's how are you going to handle it and how are you going to overcome it? And people can relate to that. For me, as you say, it was Spider-Man. Yeah. I was a skinny little nerd going through school <laughs> and I could just relate to Spider-Man. For one, he was young and two, mm -hmm. he wasn't a big guy. You always seen people like Superman, um, Batman, the Hulk, um, Daredevil. These guys got that big buff physique and the tone physique. But Spider-Man was like a smaller guy. I'm like, I right. can relate to this. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, Stanley, no matter what character you had, someone could relate to somebody always, even female characters. You paved the big way for them, too. There are a few things. I can count at least three or four things, certainly three, that Stan kind of brought to the table as a storyteller. He gave us what I, I think a lot of other people like, like to call the flawed hero. The mm -hmm. characters mm -hmm. like Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman you can't really say they're perfect per se, but they're so powerful and so complete, I guess. Unless you have kryptonite or unless you are really good at magic, you're not going to do anything that's going to hurt Superman. Uh, Batman's the genius and super athlete. Wonder Woman's got the powers of a, of a goddess and all that. Spider-Man can juggle trucks around, but has trouble making his rent on time. Tony Stark is this wonderful inventor, but he's an alcoholic. Daredevil's blind. Mm -hmm. He added those human elements mm -hmm. that I think could make the character more relatable. I think that's one of the other things he did uh, mm -hmm. on top of the um, the shared universe. And, you know, the, the thing was, was like, like, okay, like uh, as much as I love the Fantastic Four, I started thinking back on it, and you realize that the Fantastic Four is actually a pretty dysfunctional family. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Because... Because Reed and 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 and, and Sue, uh, although she is okay, she may not be as smart as Reed, but Sue is super intelligent in her own right. Her relationship with her husband is kind of problematic. Johnny is a hothead, and Ben Ben is salty because of the way he looks. Yeah. You know, and there there was a lot, there was a lot of subtext that was going on in that book. Yeah. And yeah. as a kid, like it, it was almost like. When we watch Looney Tunes, like when you watch it as a kid, it's ha ha funny as all get out. But then you get older, you're like, there's all this other stuff going on that you didn't you didn't see, and you're like, how is this actually meant for kids? But good writing does that. Great writing. Does. Mm -hmm. Um, it was. I the thing is, I always thought that there was gonna be a day that I would outgrow comics. No, I figured it, but I've been going back and I've been rereading some of the old stuff, like those uh, essential collections. So it's like stuff from the seventies up to whatever. And I've, as I've been going back and reading some of this stuff, all of a sudden I'm realizing that it was some really, really well-written stuff. 
that I I could read it on one level as a kid. I'm reading it on another level as an adult, mm -hmm. and it still means something to me. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that's what Stan was intending to do, but he managed to create an entire, well, not entire generation of fans for life. Mm -hmm. I was uh, thinking like uh, now uh, being older with Stan Lee, kids younger than us will know Stan Lee before they know a uh, historical figure. Most That's of them true. probably know who Stan Lee is over Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. uh, they're so used to seeing him. He's grown up with so many generations of children and these uh, characters have grown up with, seem like everybody. Even uh, with Thor, that was out of the box. That was all, because that wasn't even grounded in reality. That was just something they, him and Kirby made for uh, Norse mythology, because everybody else was doing like the Greek gods and mm -hmm. stuff. He decided, let's go somewhere where no one even remembers the Norse mythology, you know, and he just mm -hmm. always had that mindset of, what is everyone else doing? What can I do to go left when everyone mm -hmm. else is going right? Oh, and, and uh, what about uh, how he created Black Panther? Now, like before, before the introduction of Black Panther, people pretty much whenever you thought of uh, Africa, you thought of like desert and uh, tribes and whatever. Oh. But when you read, oh man, what was it? Was it Fantastic Four number 38? Something I like that? I think that was his first introduction. Yeah, so you read that and you're introduced to an African country that is the most technologically technologically advanced country in the entire world. They don't need the world. They have everything they need and then some. And the king is one of the smartest people in the world. Nobody was doing that back then. Yeah. Nobody. And you know? And when the uh movie came out, the one of the best things, this was last year when the Black Panther movie came out, correct? It was this uh, yeah. year. It was, it was this uh, February this year, yeah. Oh man, it makes yeah, it even yeah, I think it was, more yeah. sad. Uh, well, early this year when the movie came out, um, he was in an interview, Stanley was, and they were asking him about the Black Panther um, costumes going on for Halloween or whatever. He said he was so happy to see that there's a black character out there now where kids can dress up as him, too, because he said for years he would see um, black kids dressing up as Captain America, Iron Man, so on and so forth. He said, now I can't wait to see a white kid dress up as a black kid or a black character. And I thought that was really I, mean, I got <laughs> that's, to see that's, that's Stan. I got to see that. That's Stan. I, mm -hmm. I got to see that at the local library Geek Fest. I saw this little white kid dressed up like the Black Panther. And oh my God. Like, I have to admit, I got the feels a little bit because, you know, that just didn't, that didn't happen for my generation. That, and to see this kid that I, I, I would have loved to have been the fly on the wall for that conversation. I'm pretty sure the parents are like, okay, cool, because who doesn't want to be a king? Especially right. king mm -hmm. of the most powerful, of most, well, one, I guess really Wakanda is like the richest nation in the world. At least in the, yeah, the Marvel yeah. universe. Yeah. Yeah. They just keep to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's kind of easy to keep all that money for right now. <laughs> <laughs> that and all that vibranium. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it is one of so, those things regarding Black Panther. I, I had said this before. Obviously, I don't want to uh, get sidetracked on anything, but it's wonderful to me that. Marvel was able to put all these years of good faith in all of these great yeah. movies, because I think I can say it mm -hmm. there 25, 20 years ago, not just because of the, the massive special effects or anything like that. I don't think Black Panther would have gotten made the way it was 20 or 25 years ago. It would not have been as fantastic. It would have had the street urban feel to it or something to yeah, that effect. Yeah. If, if no, it was right. even made. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you I, 20 years ago, 
it would have been seen as a good black movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're now, right. it's just a great movie. Exactly. Yes, it is. Yeah, well, perfect. And, and the thing is, it's like, I remember talking to my mom about this, and she's like, oh, I heard they got a new black superhero. Uh, I said, Black Panther isn't new, Mom, and he's been around for 50 years. And she goes, <laughs> what? I said, yeah. He's been, I said he was introduced back in, like, 68. And my mom's like, well, somebody told me that Marvel created that because they needed a black hero. I said, no, they got plenty of black heroes, Mom. This guy's been around since, since the 60s. She goes, oh. And the thing was, Marvel waited to make sure that that if they're when they were going to introduce Black Panther, that was going to be done right. I think like back then at the point, like back in the late nineties, there was talk about Wesley Snipes doing Black mm-hmm. Panther. And yeah. I think I was all about it because I liked this Wesley Snipes kicking people in the face, but <laughs> yeah. Blade, at, yeah. yeah and, and, but if I look, look at it now, I, I, I don't mind that I had to wait 20 years to get Black Panther. I don't mind it. I don't uh, know. I know we're still, we've had the movies up. I'm still waiting for a, uh, Sally Sam won't be around to be in that one, but, uh, a better Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. I know we've had it, but, uh, yeah. waiting yeah. to see what yeah. Sam's idea was and what Kirby's art would be on screen. We haven't got to see that yet. I think they did perfect with Thor Ragnarok. That's exactly what they imagined got brought live screen. Just we go outside the box, don't have them on Earth, do it somewhere right. else. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, I believe that there's enough people who are the gatekeepers that know what Stan had in mind. And if and when the time comes and we and Marvel Studios gets to do a Fantastic Four movie, mm-hmm. that I want to believe that Stan is going to be up there smiling because it was done right. It was from his page to the screen. That's what I want to believe. One of the other things he did, um, other than what was exactly in the books, is something that I have not seen since until maybe the 90s a little bit, was he put a human face to comic books because mm-hmm. his name is synonymous with Marvel Comics. Mm-hmm. If you say DC Comics, first thing that comes to your head is usually Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. If right. you say Image, you think like Spawn and stuff like that. Now, right. in the 90s, Image Comics... There was a difference because you had Todd McFarland and uh, Jim Lee and some of these names that became celebrities, but there was also a difference in the way media was done. But mm-hmm. back in the um, 60s when Stanley did this, people knew who Stanley was from that point forward. The main the mainstream culture knew knows the name Stan Lee. Oh, if yeah. you just a general person on the street, name a um, creator from like DC Comics. They're not going to know anything. Yeah. If he's Marvel, they're going to say Stan Lee. Mm-hmm. Like... Stan Soapbox and the Bullpen Bulletin, like he he brought you in. And it, it was almost like, hey, friend, hey, this is what's going on this month in Marvel. He had a way of communicating with you. And, and like even as you watch the shows, as you watch Spider-Man and his amazing friends, anything mm-hmm. Marvel related, you, you heard Stan's voice. And that was the thing. Like if I think of Marvel, I'm thinking of Stan Lee. It doesn't okay. matter how many editor-in-chiefs there are, mm-hmm. or editors-in-chief, whatever, one of those. <laughs> uh, but but I I think of Stan Lee. Like, whatever happens, and, like, and I'll be honest with you, as much as I love the Marvel Max series, there yeah. was this part of me is like, will Stan be okay with this? He was long not a part of, well, directly related to Marvel as far as the operations at that point. But I still thought about that. 
Oh, yeah. I was thinking one reason why he also transcended from generations of generations. And as Ken was saying, uh, when you think of DC, like you said, think of the characters. For me, I think because Stan resonated with so many children, they grew up and had kids. And they're like, oh, I know that voice. That's Stan Lee. Then mm-hmm. you hear another cartoon in the 80s would come on. Oh, that's Stan Lee's voice. The 90s, you would hear Stan. I remember playing the Spider-Man video game on uh, PlayStation. And Stan Lee didn't make a cameo. His voice did, though. He introduced yeah. the very first minute of the video game. And did, without seeing his voice or seeing his face, I knew the voice. I'm like, mm-hmm. that's Stan Lee. So yeah. it, he just, I think because he stayed around and made sure people knew who he was, uh, just being iconic for that. And then after a while, how many creators would you see when a movie would come out that would have their name pop up on the logo too? At the end of the movie, you see exclusive producer Stan Lee. And that's something mm-hmm. that always resonated with me from the Punisher movies to the Spider-Man movies to the X-Men movies. Before right. Marvel had their cinematic universe, the cartoons, I would see that at the very end. He made sure he always kept his hands in there. Yeah, yeah. And I remember reading, I forget what the publication was. Don't know if it was Starlog, but it was one of those geek magazines that you'd have to get at the comic shops because you couldn't get them at at the uh, newsstands or, or at the department uh-huh. stores yet. But I remember an interview with Stan, and this is around the time the first Michael Keaton Batman came out, and Marvel was going forth with a movie division. And they were, you know, this, by the time they were bringing back Hulk for um, 80s TV movies, and they were talking about doing an X-Men movie, but Stan was saying that he did not want to do Marvel movies just to do Marvel movies. He wanted that measure of control. So he said he wanted to get his name on it as executive producer uh. because he would say in his own words, it means I'm to blame if the movie's no good. I, I want to have the credit if it's good or I want to take the blame if it's bad. And that that does sound like Stan. He oh, yeah, used sure. his creations, especially you go back to that uh, dreck of a 70s uh, Spider-Man TV show was like Spider-Man is somehow having trouble with street thugs when he could like literally just flick them away with his pinky or something. But I thought it really worked out in the end. It's obviously easy to say it now, 30 years later, but the fact that he was willing to wait so long before he could finally put his name on it and get things done the way he wanted. And after all that time, I think it speaks volumes for not just his creativity, but his, uh, belief in his his way so to speak Mm -hmm. well the thing is like stan is first and foremost a storyteller and i was reading a quote from him and you know he talked about how he used to be ashamed to say that he was a comic book writer because there were people who were doctors and police officers and engineers but he thought about it he recognized that what he was doing was good work too, because without entertainment, people would lose their minds. And if what he's doing helps keep people sane and give them a break from the world, then he's doing good work and he's done good work and he's inspired others to do good work. And in his books, it's more than just entertainment. It teaches readers morality. It teaches them tolerance. It teaches them... Uh, the importance of being open-minded and being understanding. Because a lot of those characters are complex characters, like Dr. Doom. On one side of it, okay, yeah, you know, he's kind of a jerk. But at the same time, he's a man who loves his country. And he's Mm -hmm. willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that his country 
has whatever it needs. And that's something that we all can relate to. And the truth is, like, uh, we can relate to Magneto to a certain degree. Like, um, okay, Magneto is a little extreme in his, the way he wants to protect his kind, but I get it. And so there are some just straight up bad people in the Marvel universe. But at the same time, there are some lot, there's a lot of complex characters in there too that kind of make you have to stop and think, like, are they really that bad? You, you right. Know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, don't, I don't think that there were many writers that were doing that at the, at the time. You yeah, know? a lot of them were bad for the sake of being bad. But with Stan Lee, I know like the new thing is called a lot of anti heroes are booming in the early 2000s. But before mm-hmm. that, Stan Lee already really had them. It was like Loki, even for example, if you think about this, if you were an adopted child that never knew he was adopted, couldn't figure out why he wouldn't fit in, can't figure out why the dad would never ever treat you like he his other brother. You grow up and find, huh, I'm adopted. What? I don't like you now. <laughs> you lied to me, mm-hmm. treated me bad my whole life. It's like, you can understand why he feels this way about his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing about Stanley, from what I heard after uh, his passing, everyone got on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all these social medias. He really loved his fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He really, really loved his fans. There's uh, this yeah. one guy talking about he was at a con and this was a while ago. May Stan was about 93, maybe a couple of years ago. I can't really remember, but he said uh, Stan was sick. So he was getting really bad uh, at this time. He was just really sick. And they told him uh, he should stay in his hotel room, but he said he'll just be about an hour late. And when he got there, you could still tell he wasn't feeling his best. But once you got up to talk to him, they said he would just be like, hey, how are you doing today? How's your day going? It's like, he's going sick. We should be asking you why did you come <laughs> out? But he you uh, loved us so much. He, as you said, relatable. Anything he did, he could relate to. And that's one big reason why I think he kept doing that because he actually talked to people that was buying his material. Mm-hmm. Hey, man. How long was he doing those con conventions all over the country, all over the world, really up until yeah. just a year ago or so? Right. Yeah. You know, he, I don't think he quit by his choice. He was told, you're not going back out. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. All these new writers we have out of, for example, Todd McFarlane, he went on Spider-Man and he tried to do uh, some stuff like what Stan Lee was doing. And then uh, Frank Miller for The Dark Knight, there's another, well, the one you were talking about uh, a little bit earlier stuff when uh, they were going back and forth at it. He's still younger than Stan Lee, but uh, back when he first made The Dark Knight, that's when I heard uh, Stan was like, uh, when I, what are we going to do at Marvel? We just, he's created something new. He's twisted mm-hmm. it. Got us getting into this gritty world. And then a little while later, he comes over to do Daredevil. The same guy mm-hmm. that was there. He didn't want. And it was one of those things. It was competition, but it was friendly competition. He wasn't like, oh, right. we should be afraid now. We can't do this. How about you just work with the guy, get to know him, get make a friend out of him, make some uh, books for you guys. And that's what yeah. Stan did. Yeah. Yeah. And even now in more recent years, you will see writers that are working for both Marvel and DC at the same time. One of my favorite writers uh, of, of current writers is Mark Wade, and he's working for Marvel and DC back and forth, like for the last 25 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, um, I know, what is it? Ben Acker is actually writing Vertigo right now, but he's also writing Star Wars comics for Marvel. Yes. <laughs> and that's, that's another thing. I, I, I might be wrong here, but I personally believe uh, if whatever back in the day when Star Wars was working with uh, Marvel, I don't know if Disney would have really been the perfect lineup for requiring uh, Lucasfilms because it's like they already had some sort of deal built in there somewhere. Right. 
Mm -hmm. some comic books and now we're getting great i think the books are just getting better and better as the years go by sometimes i i personally like the uh, star wars uh reads more than i do some of the new films right now yeah well mark diving a little bit deeper well the the when when they brought star wars over um back uh what that must have been what 77 78 yeah and so the thing was all you had at that point was one movie and then the first Star Wars book actually came out before the movie was released. It did. Yes. Why, yeah. Really? The movie. Yeah, it did. So, because I remember the name was Howard Chaykin, I think, did the okay. art for that. And if yeah. I recall correctly, it's it, it's not something he is uh, very uh, chopping at the bit to talk about that 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 point in his career. But no, yeah. which I met Howard Chaykin at the same convention that I met Steranko at. Chaykin mm-hmm. is so cool. If you get an opportunity. Meet the man, talk to him. He's awesome. But I digress. So the thing was, because Marvel, they did some creative things with the Star Wars property, considering we didn't get Empire to what, 80, 81? Right. Yeah, 80, I believe. So in essence, what we ended up with were, and I like to see, feel, I feel is the beginnings of the expanding universe. I, I don't know if George Lucas had a Bible for them to go by. But the truth is, we only had the one point. We only had one movie. And so and so they they took that, and Marvel took that as, okay, let's run with it. And mm-hmm. you know what? I'll be honest with you, one of my personal favorite, well, you know my, my, my favorite movies of all time is Buckaroo Banzai, and Marvel Comics had the comic adaptation. And I, don't, I can't say Stan was directly related to that, but still, it was Marvel. But Stan did write the lyrics to, what was it? You remember the show Defenders of the Earth? Stan Lee wrote the lyrics to the theme for the show. You know, yeah. So Stan, Stan well, I we, we can say he was a writer, but technically he was a songwriter too. So yeah, there you go. He was a, a great writer. You know, that, that that guy that guy was everywhere doing everything, it feels like it. Oh no. Yeah. Well, uh one other thing I think I wanted to to talk about here and then we can kind of uh I'll go with 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 how it flows. Um, everybody, I think, is probably going to have their favorite or favorite group of Stanley cameos over the years, oh, yeah. and the one I think that will always and forever be my favorite wasn't even for a Marvel movie. And I think you may know the one that I'm thinking of, and that's the appearance that he made in Mallrats, where oh, he was able yeah. to calm yeah, down Brody and get him to. Yes, to uh, reconcile with his girlfriend, and he makes up this this whole story about how he had this girl on. Because obviously, we know Stan was married to the same woman for seventy years. Um, but he had this whole thing of Doctor Doom was like this dark version of himself because he felt so bad because of the one that got away, and the Hulk just turned into mean and nasty because that's what he felt like because of the one that got away. So it's the heart of the movie. But that's also, I think, very much like a story that Stan might have written, that he would have the person who you can understand where they're coming from. Dr. Doom is an example. What does Dr. Doom want more than anything else in the world? He wants to save the soul of his mother. Yep. Mm-hmm. Who can't relate to that? Yeah, exactly. So I, that, that's why that cameo will always be my favorite, is because it seemed like it was the most like Stan, like if you were to ever meet Stan in real, in, in real life. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys man. had a, a favorite or not, but oh, so, I totally do. 
but it's only because it's so not Stan. But uh, his cameo in uh, was it the is it the first Deadpool movie where he's the DJ in the uh, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, yeah, because he that is so not Stan. But mm-hmm. that's like my favorite one of it. That that's like my favorite one because I like some of the cameos. You you just kind of know what to expect. Like, is he a guy in the street? Is he a guy? No. Uh, is he you know, driving a bus or whatever? But yeah. I did not expect to see him. You know, uh, although what was it? Uh, is it Avengers? The one where he's in the casino? Uh, that was Black Panther, actually. Black Panther. Yeah. Okay. Although I did like that one too. So apparently, my favorite ones are ones where Stan is 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 not a very Stan situation. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I just couldn't see him doing that. But that's just me. Then you have the one from what was it, Guardians? Guardians Two, where it's the most yeah. meta Stan, yeah. yeah, whatever. Yeah, where he he's like visiting the other Watchers. Yeah, um, explaining the way this universe works. <laughs> but yeah. I know for me, my my favorite memories of Stan would have to still go back to just. All of his appearances, and especially the 80s animated series and stuff. The stuff that, mm-hmm. um, like I said, he was the first fate I ever had to comic books. It wasn't even his face. It was his voice. Knowing that this guy actually writes the books. And you see him, I, uh, I get to watch the shows every week with him on it. Yeah. For me, it still goes back. I have to. The one I mentioned earlier was when, like I said, when he was on the Spider-Man uh, animated series. Just hearing him... It's so weird hearing a creator dive into the reality that, or the, uh, yeah, actually dive into reality that they made from the uh, characters. So you could relate to Spider-Man so much. He actually put himself in the situation of, if this character really came to life, how would I react? And that's what he was showing. Then the second one was, um, one Ken mentioned uh, for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, okay, is he actually a watcher? And then he watchers sent out to tell go back to them like what are we missing mm-hmm. right he's actually the same character in it, in it. Also, um right that one was probably my those two were my favorites it's like he just adds real stuff in these this world that he made up but still could relate to these characters so much as like why would i change myself and make myself a character i am the character like it, that mm-hmm. i just thought that was really awesome the creator <laughs> and the character so um yes yeah, stan uh stan was awesome Mm-hmm. And I think uh, a lot of us probably have the memories, at least w- what I remember the, with stuff in the 80s when he might appear as a caricature of himself with a stand soapbox or whatever. And he, he looked the most like some of those pictures of him in the 70s where there was still some dark in his hair and he'd yeah. have the black mustache and the silver aviator sunglasses mm-hmm. and he'd have like that tan leather jacket, like looking like he just stepped right out of a, a 70s exploitation movie. <laughs> yes and there was that one picture that one picture of him that was showing up in like all the marvel comics of him in a it was I, it looked like dr strange's cape mm. it, it was like that and it was weird because looking back on it it was cool it looked like it might have been at a marvel party or some type but it, it, it for the longest time seemed like almost every issue of marvel comics i would read you see this picture of stan in this huge Doctor Strange looking cape, and, and so I and at times I pictured that whenever I pick, think of Stan Lee, that's how I pictured him like wearing Doctor Strange's cape, or I guess technically it was a cloak, but it's a cloak uh, of levitation. But yeah, so when you're talking about uh, we stepped off of the explanation uh, movies, um, you guys, remember, this is one of my favorite quotes from Stan Lee, just that made me laugh. This is one of the few things where I'm like, 
this is Stan Lee not being Stan Lee, but in real uh-huh. life, he's usually just the, he has these quick comebacks and stuff when he's uh, roasting people or whatever. Or, uh, but this one, I was just like, I can't believe Stan said that. Uh, someone asked him, you guys probably know where I'm going with this. They asked him, um, what does he think about these digital comic books? And he said, they're not bad. Let me put you like this. Boobs look great on the internet, but it's better to have a real one in your head. I was this close to sharing that. I'm like, no, I'm going to be nice. But, dude, that's like my favorite Stan Lee quote because it's so true. That's just, I, I couldn't believe Stan said it. And I'm like. I couldn't either. I was like, wait, did Stan put okay. this out or someone just put that together as a meme? No, he really said that. And I think about that whenever I open Marvel Unlimited. And I'm like. Yeah. Yeah. I, but, yeah. It's like, not the same. It, and I, and I love Marvel Unlimited. Just I can't afford those books back in the day. They are expensive. Yeah. 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 Now. <laughs> Now you wait six months, you get an entire library of them. But mm-hmm. I guess technically it's not the same as, although they've been reprinting some of these classic books with a true believers line. And that oh, makes okay. me think about Stan Lee too, because Stan Lee, whenever he was started shows, he said, hello, true believers. Yeah. And you're like, and so I wish I had the opportunity to read Daredevil number one. And I, I, I'm reading this. And the the thing was, okay, Matt Murdock is blind, all right? And he has these extraordinary abilities, true. But, you know, Stan Lee did something else with Matt, and it was something that has carried on through whoever else wrote the books. Matt is smug. Like, like mm-hmm. Matt is cocky. And who would think about making a blind man cocky? <laughs> and But Stan would. And and he was cocky for for several reasons, but a lot of people just took it as him as Matt being Matt, mm-hmm. and that was something that was that was like as a kid, I loved the idea of a blind man that was able to hand out beatdowns. But mind you, I loved watching Kung Fu because of Master Poe. But when uh, Daredevil first came on the scene, you didn't see blind people like that, uh, and, and I, right. I'm sorry, I know this is um, a little... I don't, I don't think Stan... Yeah, Stan Lee didn't have a big hand in the Deadpool character himself, but because of what he did with Charles Xavier was in the wheelchair, uh, as we said, um, Daredevil being blind. I feel like a lot of people overlook this character, but Deadpool has cancer. That's mm-hmm. something a lot of people deal with. It's a big issue people deal with for people that know someone in their family. And once again, it's like, oh, I don't know about this blind guy that's going to be able to do all this. You can't do this, but hey, it's empowering. Same for Deadpool. A lot of people that do have cancer. It's like, hey, I might not be able to do this, but this is empowering. If I could do this, this is awesome. Um, and you could always relate. And I also feel like uh, the Hawk was another big one that gets overlooked. Stan mm-hmm. Lee made him. How many people have temper tantrums? They have these anger issues. Uh, then the, the whole Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing, the whole schizophrenia stuff. Like, <laughs> there's right. a picture. Is that you're talking about? That's yep. a picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, that that's that image I was talking about, looking like a exploitation movie or something like that. I'll have to put that in the show notes. Oh my god, <laughs> I, I'm sure that that's what I would picture that. And I've been th- I, I I've been thinking about that image more often than not in the last couple of days. But yeah, that's actually it says it's Stanley with Captain Sticky at the 1975 San Diego Comic Con. That's the perfect. Captain day. Sticky uh, drove a bubble top Lincoln car with flags and flashing lights. Mm-hmm. So and Stan was a character. Yeah. And another thing talking about those characters that uh, you might not think of 
having the hero or uh, other aspects to them. Tony Stark. Now, granted, a character like Bruce Wayne existed before, but here's Tony Stark, the epitome of that corporate America, big business, billionaire, all that thing. Um, I I can make the obvious analogies, but I won't. Um, And they make him the good guy. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, And on top of that, he was tied to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You remember? Yeah, you remember he was in. Yeah, uh, he was what? He, well, was Stark Industries was uh, uh, making weapons at that point, and he was visiting the troops or testing a weapon or whatever when I, all that stuff happened, and that mm-hmm. was in Vietnam. Now he kind of went there. Yeah, mm-hmm. he did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Also, uh, the pun. This is, is another topic, but the Punisher and the Fantastic Four get tied in there. Now I know we have Wonder Woman in uh Superman for like back in the day, the big heroes that didn't wear a mask, but at the same time, they still had secret identity. With the Fantastic Four, it's like, I'm Reed Richards, I'm Ben Grimm, I'm uh, Susan and Johnny Storm. Frank uh, uh, Frank Castle just didn't care. He lost his family. He doesn't care if anyone sees his face or not. I remember when they, they can't, they, I don't, Stanley, I don't think, created that version of Punisher. There was another Punisher years before, but yeah, he was like a one-off character, but they said that name yeah. was reused and rebranded, and someone brought the idea to stand, they were drawing these masks. It was skull. He was like, "Wait a minute! Don't put a don't put a mask on him." From his background of what you're telling me, he doesn't need one. Um, mm-hmm. And that was something I thought was really uh, innovative because a lot of characters, if they didn't have a secret identity or a mask, a lot of people felt like they couldn't relate to him. But it's like Stan was like, "I feel like he'll probably be more relatable because if you're on this path like this, you don't care if no one knows your face or who you are or not. You just have a goal and use oneself for that goal." Yeah, there's a, a a little bit of info that a lot of fans might not know the Punisher actually started out as an antagonist. He started out as a bad guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. He was trying to, uh, he's trying to kill Spider-Man. <laughs> that was his old yeah. Tired. Uh, was it, was it, oh man, who was that guy? Was he the Goblin? Uh, it, goblin? it was a uh, Jackal that hired the Punisher, jack- I believe. The Jackal. I uh, do have the issue. And he wouldn't. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, he hired him to kill Spider-Man because, um, he thought he was a bad guy, but he was like, no, he's not a bad guy. He's actually a good, good guy. You're the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a tribute too big for just one show, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, fellow geeks and geek guests. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville Radio. And yes, we did do a tribute to Stan the Man Lee in our past episode, but our my usual co-host was unable to make that show, but he is here in the flesh for our own kind of round two tribute to Stan the Man Lee. Ladies and gentlemen, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry I missed the last one. It was kind of strange. You and I were recording our most recent Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame about the Lone Ranger. Check that Mm -hmm. out and, 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 you know, to the podcasting device of your choice. Cheap plug. And I hung up with you, Seth, and I had a text that Stan had passed. I can't say I was shocked because he was 95 right. years old, but still, you know, it's, it's, is as a geek, a guy who grew up on comic books, that's, it's, it's a pretty big body blow. Right. So, right. I had told a lot of people the story over the years and I'd put it up on my personal Facebook page. And I'll, I'll share the story here as well that, you know, I got to meet Stanley in 1998 where he signed my copy of Spider-Man 129. And as I explained in the last show, that for comic buffs, that's the first appearance of the Punisher. So that comic was already, you know, of historical significance 
and I got Stan to sign it. So it's kind of my geek measuring stick, so to speak, when it comes to what's the coolest geek thing you have. But the thing is about Stan, of course, obviously 95 years old, even in the 70s, I remember noticing, and it's what I wrote about, that he had a young man's handshake. And he always kind of seemed even well into his 90s, while you could tell you know, he had gotten older and he certainly made it no secret that he had trouble hearing. But I don't think that sense of wonderment, so to speak, that we kind of lose from adolescence to adulthood, you know, when we have to start adulting all the time. I think Stan kind of kept that because, you know, he truly was a one of a kind. And I think he realized that being a comic book writer and a comic book inventor of sorts, I mean, that that is... Certainly not a bad life and not a career to uh, scoff at, certainly from an artistic standpoint. No, I think it's it's kind of humorous. And I, I would think Stan would probably say the same. If you look back when he got into the comic book world <laughs> through, I believe it was a family member, you know, in the, mm-hmm. the old Timely comics. Right. He was only doing it as a part-time gig, hoping that it would parlay itself into a a job as a novelist. He wanted to be a a quote unquote serious writer. I think that his impact by being involved in the comics world was much, much greater than it ever would have been. I mean, I think he was a creative guy. He probably would have grown a good book, but believe me, there's novelists out there that that would be chomping the bit to have half of the notoriety that Stan Lee had and and respect he had amongst us before his creative endeavors. So I think that's kind of humorous. You know, that he's the guy's it's just a part-time gig. I'm going to, I'm going to grow past this. And well, you know, he never did. He, he, he always stayed with comics and we're, 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 you know, we're thankful for it. Can you talk all the pop culture currently with the MCU, but I mean, comics were not at a good place in the sixties when he took over Marvel. They really weren't. They were on the downturn. They just come out of the, the, the whole Kefauver hearings in the Senate and comics were being accused of all kinds of terrible things. Yeah, believe it or not, there were controversies essentially saying that comic books, because it was the 50s, which in some ways the 80s were kind of like the 50s on steroids in some ways, when it came to a political intrigue, there were actually people that believed that comic books were corrupting the minds of youth because of all, you know, the horror and uh, violence that could happen. And, and there were actually people that somehow thought that comic books would turn you into a communist because everything turned you into a communist in the fifties. So, you know, so, yeah, <laughs> it was called the red scare for a reason. Yeah. It was, it was paranoia and you know, comics were just not in a good place. I mean, I don't know. It was what, probably about five, five four or five years before he took over Marvel that the, the, the comics code was enacted. That was probably, was like 58, I think, the comics code was like Yeah, 56. I think it was. And, and it was an attempt by the comic creators to, for lack of a better term, kind of self-censorship. It's like, well, you know, and, and this is a very simplified, uh, possibly skewed because of my own bias that I freely admit, just a summary of what happened, that the, the comic book creators, essentially, the, the publishers, all kind of came together and said, okay, well, we're going to be regulated. So we can either do something voluntarily ourselves where we'll put forth this comics code that we're not going to depict women like this. We're not going to draw women like this. We're not going to show this, you know, drug use and only so much in violence. They can either voluntarily do that or we can let the government do it for us. So they kind of adopted the comics code voluntarily before the government stepped in to, 
you know, change anything for them. I mean, I know that's probably right. a little skewed from my own bias, but I don't think that's too far off from the truth. No, no, I think everybody freely admits that. I, 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 most of the people that were involved in the comics world at that point, that's kind of their same take on it. And so it was, if you go look at older comics, you'll see it. It's a little symbol. Mm-hmm. It was said as approved and it, that it met the standards of the comics code. And mm-hmm. the reason I bring this up is I'll get to it later when I talk more about some of my respect for Stan from a personal level. So when he takes over Marvel, this is going on. Comics, I mean, there was starting to be a resurgence because DC, of course, had started Justice League at that point. Right. And it, I, I mean, I think Justice League was essentially their attempt to reinvigorate some characters that had gotten stale like Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. You know, yeah, um, yeah. I think just shooting from the hip, I think it was the Flash that they had reintroduced, and this would have been the Barry Allen Flash, yes, uh, instead of the right. Jay Garrick Flash. And yeah, Correct. essentially that kind of restarted or reinvigorated the superhero genre. Justice League started coming out, and of course, superheroes, you know, Superman and all those guys being kind of squeaky clean, for lack of a better term, and that kind of brings us into Atlas re. What would the word be? Rebranding? Uh, yeah, rebranding. Thank you. That's the exact word I was looking for. Rebranding into Marvel and Stan kind of getting getting the pen where he can cut loose with with new superheroes. Right. And, and you know, Fantastic Four was in direct created to be their version of Justice League. Stan's admitted that many times. That was the whole point. Fantastic Four was meant to be Marvel's super team up. And I, I don't know if, Fantastic Four was Stan's favorite creation, but he was quite fond of it. There's no doubt about that. But, I mean, most of your early Marvel stuff, I mean, comic fans know this, but the stuff that is the the foundation of the Marvel Universe that come from the 60s, Stan had, had was directly or, or indirectly involved in almost the creation of almost all of them. So you're talking Fantastic Four, you're talking Spider-Man, you're talking, and then when I say these, these characters, that also means they're rogues gallery too, usually, mm-hmm. the older villains. The X-Men, Black Panther, Doctor Strange, well, essentially what is um, truly is the foundation of the Marvel Universe is, right. is directly, and Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, of course, as well. We've already talked about Ditko because sadly we lost him this year as well. We lost Kirby about, what, seven years ago, wasn't it, when we lost Jack Kirby? So, yeah. yeah, I mean, those were the guys that, that you know, created the Marvel way the Marvel, what we know as Marvel. And I think that Stan, even though he wanted to be a novelist, once he got into comics, he stayed in it wholeheartedly. And everybody wants to praise Stan for his creativity, and they should. And for what he brought to the table as far as helping to create all these these iconic characters, they should. I think the greatest thing to me personally for Stan was he was just a fan of comics, and he was an ambassador for comics. And he mm-hmm. never stopped pushing this idea that comics was a was a, an art form. It was creativity. It was on par with literature and music and other forms of entertainment. It can be as enlightening and as educational and as entertaining as all them. And it, and it went beyond just being juvenile. I think some of the themes that he dealt with in these early titles we're talking like the X-Men, like the Fantastic Four, like Spider-Man, those kind of showed that, you know, that he was always going for this sense of comics are more than what you think they are. They're not just for kids. Right. And and so he became this ambassador and he is, as a wrestling guy, I know that there are people that have never watched one professional wrestling match in their life. 
but they could pick Hulk Hogan, The Rock, and Stone Cold Steve Austin out of a lineup. They know who they are. Mm -hmm. Stan's one of those, Stan's like the only guy behind the scenes in comics that I could probably say that about, you know? Right. If you're a comic geek like you and me, we can sit there and name dozens of creators, writers, artists, and other comic fans are going to know us. But you talk to a person who doesn't read comic books, they aren't going to know any of them. But you say Stan Lee, they knew Stan Lee. And they knew what he looked like because he was so out in the public pushing this this agenda of comics are the great thing. And it wasn't just Marvel. I think that, you know, you opened up there with his cameo in a DC property. The day that he passed, the, you know, the opening homepage for DC's website was a tribute to Stan Lee. And, I mean, that's uh, the, the best analogy I can come up with that is, like, when Ray Kroc died, if Burger King had done a tribute to Ray Kroc, you know, who was the founder yeah. of, of McDonald's. It's the same type thing. You know, this is the main competitor to Marvel is DC. And this guy who's so intrinsically tied to, to, to Marvel is getting praised by the competition. He just meant that much to comics. I don't mm-hmm. think I can underscore that. For me personally, I remember even as a young boy, he was the guy who would show up on the Today Show or, or you know, he was the kind of guy that would go on Carson and he would be talking about comics. Mm-hmm. When did you get him to sign this, your 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 particular Spider-Man? It, it was August of 1998, so a little bit more than 20 years ago as of this writing. Was, I think it was actually the first Comic-Con that I had went to in Rosemont because the Chicago Comic-Con, sometimes it's called Wizard World. I think it may still have the wizard name attached to it, but that was the main place, you know, just down the street from the Rosemont right. Horizon, now known as the Allstate Arena was where a lot of these conventions took place. Is that the one where the, the cover has Spider-Man, the crosshairs, and and, and Punishers standing yes. there with the, with the... Okay, yeah, that's what yeah, I thought. Yeah, it, it, it's been parodied in a lot of stuff since, yeah. Well, I met Stan, too, and I was much younger than you when I met him. And I have a picture somewhere, and, and ladies and gentlemen, if I find it, I need to go through storage. I will make sure it winds up on our webpage. But I'm sure most of our listeners remember this that are of our age. I know you remember that god-awful Spider-Man television series mm-hmm. that came out in the late 70s that was just horrendous. <laughs> well, I was a young boy, and I was just beginning to discover Ghost Rider, which all our listeners know is my favorite character. So at that point, Spider-Man was my favorite character. Said so as a seven-year-old child, I was just elated that this was going to be a TV show. You know, we had the Hulk, we had Wonder Woman, and I loved them. But, I mean, Spider-Man was, was it for me. And I lived in Denver at the time. I was living in the South. And, you know, Denver, like Chicago, is a big city. They get more things in smaller cities. And as part of the press junket to push this show, they were sending out a a guy dressed up as Spider-Man and Stan Lee to malls all over the country in these bigger cities. And uh, I begged to go. And my mother took me because it was Spider-Man. And I met quote unquote, Spider-Man and Stan Lee and have my picture taken with him. So that's uh, as a geek is one of my most precious pieces of geekdom. You know, I, I mean, it, now that he's passed, it means even more, but here's this little, you know, starstruck seven-year-old crazy train with Spider-Man and Stan Lee. That's, that's about as mm-hmm. cool a geek thing as it gets, I think, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And in my case with it being in the nineties, I think I had brought a camera, but obviously 1998, the, the digital camera or the phone was not nearly what it was now. So I think right, I may right. have taken some pictures, but you know, in those 
portable disposable cameras that maybe had a flash on it. You know, you you, you were throwing the dice unless you really knew lighting and such to, to get a proper picture. So I don't think I ever got my picture taken with Stan, although he was taking pictures of people. Sure, sure. I mean, this was the Stan I saw in the set. 70s. I think he had just started to grow the facial hair at that point because if he had a mustache in it mm-hmm. and he was just starting to get the Reed Richards salt and pepper, he still had, I don't know if he colored his hair or not. He was wearing the dark glasses for sure. And he looked like, you know, a cool old dude, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. He, he was very, very stylish for the time, but in a conservative way. I mean, he had like a turtleneck and, and you know, uh, I think it was like, a, you know, like a suede jacket with the, with the elbow, you know, like a college professor with the elbow. Right. Coverings and bell bottoms on, you know, he was dressed cool, but it was conservative. I mean, he didn't like he's ready to go to the discotheque or anything, but right. he was definitely 70s attire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, something you might have seen in like a McDade, McDade's catalog at the time or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's I mean, that's the only time I ever interact. I'm mean, as many cons as I've been to. He was never at another con I went to. I never got to 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 get my picture taken with him or, or shake his hand. I've, I've seen many of his interviews. I remember in the early 90s, and this is when I was in college after the mission for my church, there was a series of VHS tapes and and that came out that I think was called The Art of Comics or The the, the Story of Comics, like something of comics, but it was hosted by Stan. I don't, you said off mic that you, you vaguely remembered this this series. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think I had seen one that was playing at my local comic shop at at the time right. so it was one of those things they, they would just put up on a on a tv on just yeah it, it, exactly so i think that's where i remember seeing it but I, I never saw it in its entirety but i i remember renting renting it from blockbuster yeah that's that's a flash in, for the past isn't yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> and uh it was it was neat it was i mean he had older guys on there you know guys from his youth the fa- the part that I found fascinating was he had like a a very young Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane on there, and he did not seem to be out of step at all, even with these guys who were oh gosh what in their twenties at the time probably, you know, mm-hmm. and and they were really the the driving they were becoming the driving factor in the comics world at the time, and if you know the history of those guys and how they all left the major. The major, the two major studios, and started Image and Wildstorm and all their own companies. And him, you know, it, it, it's amazing to see. You would think that Stan would be the kind of guy that they'd be a, like most twenty-year-olds are, a little bit of a smart aleck too. They weren't. Mm-hmm. They were so respectful of him, and you could just tell even through there. This was, it's like it's Stan Lee. You know, I mean, right. At the end of the day, Jim Lee and 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 McFarlane and all those guys. Guess what? They love Stan as much as we did. You know, I mean, as much yeah. as they may have fought with the higher ups when they once they became comics creators, at the end of the day, Stan Lee's still Stan Lee. He's still Stan the man, you know? Yeah. One of so. the sayings that I had borrowed, shall we speak, from Kevin Smith is he had said that Stan Lee is on the same level pedestal for him that like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg are on because obviously we know Kevin Smith's bring up was in comics and then got into movie directing. So two of the most famous movie directors and Stan Lee are kind of that trifecta of who's been the most influential. influential. And, yeah. And I've obviously never been a movie director. don't really care to be one, but I can certainly relate to, you know, all the great movies that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg gave us and all the great characters that, that Stan gave us. So one of the things I do tell people about Stan, because I know 
a lot of people these days will do both. I mean, you know, there's people like John Byrne who could write and draw. I mean, there still are guys like one of my favorite comic writers today is Mark Wade, but uh-huh. I'd seen people, maybe they were younger folks or maybe, you know, you kind of, if you learn something on the internet from a certain point of view, so to speak, to quote Obi-Wan, there were people saying, well, Stan wasn't much of an artist and it's true. Stan would have been the first person to tell you that he needed guys like Steve Ditko, like John Romita, like Jack uh, Kirby. One, Jack Kirby, yeah, that was the third one I was looking for. Is that had he not had those people working with him, they might not have been the wonderful characters and creations that they were. I don't even think Stan was much of a guy who wrote Fog and stuff. I think Stan was more of an idea man, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's fair. And the things that Stan gave us that put him in that all-time great category. Kind of like how I say, to make a guitar analogy, a musical analogy, anybody that picks up guitar today, if they want to play country or blues or or rock, chances are they're going to know a lot of licks that Chuck Berry came up with, and they're probably going to know some licks that people like Carl Perkins came up with and maybe not even know it. I think there's things in the superhero trope that Stan Lee put out there that people take for granted now and might not realize that it was Stan that did it. Stuff like the imperfect hero or the flawed hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as I've said before, you know, Spider-Man could toss around cars, but has trouble paying his rent on time. You know, right. Tony Stark was an alcoholic, you know, stuff like da- that. Da- Daredevil could do all these amazing things, but he's blind. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the, the major difference between Marvel and DC heroes. And I definitely think that is Stan's thumbprint. Now, I think later on, especially characters like Aquaman, Batman, I think DC writers made them more flawed. Yeah. Uh, but originally, no, they weren't. And that was what differentiated Marvel from DC. And that was all Stan, you know? Mm-hmm. I think Stan, though, you're right, is the first guy to say he wasn't he wasn't an artist. He wasn't. I, I mean, I, I say this with a lot of love and a lot of endearment in my tone, so please don't take it the wrong way, but Stan was probably better at promoting Stan than anything else. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it it was, if it had been anybody other than Stan, I might have been bothered by it, but the fact that he was such a comics fan, yeah, he pushed himself, but he pushed himself for the betterment of all comics. You know, I think that's why you're seeing the outpouring in the past few days of so many diversified people, but especially people in the comics world, whether they're directly related to it or they're, you know, they're tangent to it, like the actors that are in the MCU speak so highly of Stan is because Stan was just a fun guy. He was a nice guy. I think, you know, if you read any of his Stan soapbox, which of course what he became really well known for, which was essentially his take on the letters to the editor. And it was usually just him just, just uh, getting up on a soapbox, like it said, yeah. and just speaking his yeah, mind, just saying whatever he felt. Yeah. yeah. Just, of course, that's where enough said Nick Celsior came from. His his two catchphrases, where that's often how he signed those off. If you read those, though, especially from the seventies, and Stan just seemed like a guy who just wanted the world to get along. You know, I think it takes a mind like that to create heroes like he create helped to create. Because as I say all the time, heroes are the ones that do what we hope we would do if we had their powers. That's what makes a hero. Mm-hmm. And Believe me, the flawed heroes that Stan created, there's a lot of self-doubt 
that goes on in those characters. You see it throughout the run of Marvel characters. Then you you, you name one, whether it's Reed Richards or Tony Stark or Matt Murdock or, or T'Challa, they all have moments of self-doubt. But when push comes to shove, what do they do? The right thing, mm-hmm. you know? So I think it takes a man that has that much hope and that much compassion in his heart to create characters like that. So I think it was legit from Stan. I think it's just who he was. I mean, he was he was a Jewish kid from, that grew up, you know, poor in New York City. He saw the horrors of war. He served in World War II. You know, it, it, it's he saw a lot of bad things. And yeah. he never let it get him down. He, he just, you know, Stan was one of those people who said the world needs to be in a better place and it can start with you, you know? And it, it's, it's, it's that mindset that gets me as a comics fan to try to get non-comics fan to understand what I see in comics, what most of us see in comics, is that, yeah, it's escapism and it's all this, but at the end of the day, you can really learn some important life lessons from comics, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Bringing up World War II, I, I mean, I think, to me, of all, of all the things, though, I think I probably respect Stan for, uh, he he married the love of his life. It was a joy. He met her in, in Britain when he was serving over there during World War II, and they were happily married till she passed away Several years ago, what sixty years almost that they were together? And that, that sound I right to you? I think it was. I think it was almost seventy. Yeah, she she passed. I think it was last year because I think it was shortly after he did the panel that I saw with mm. Frank Miller. And and in today's day and age, to be married double digits is amazing. To be married that long to the same person is really amazing. So yeah. you know, kudos to, to the two of them. I, I'm I'm I remember they did a documentary on Stan about ten years ago. And it was just really, really neat to see the two of them dancing. They put on these old, you know, old like like swing records from the '40s, and here's the two of them in their living room dancing, just probably like they did years ago, you know, when they first met. And I'm going, and you could just tell these two people are really in love, you know, just like mm-hmm. the two kids. And I just thought that was amazing. And I'm going that, you know, if nothing else, to like Stan Lee, take that, to, you know, that's a pretty yeah. cool example. I mean, we could all learn from that. I'm sure they're together again, dancing again. And that's, that's always the, the silver lining in the, in, in the clouds of, of when somebody passes. If you have, you know, not to get preachy, but if you have a, a belief system like I do, you believe that we're going to have something after this life. And those are the kind of things we can look forward to, you know. So 95 is, is a long time. I mean, I, I want to be sad, but at the same time, 95, they had a very long, productive life. That's amazing, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's something we'll, we'll get into in our next segment when we talk about the, the great Roy Clark. He was actually born the year before Hank Williams was, Hank Williams Sr., when you think about that. So, right, you right. Know, so, you know, Stan was actually older than, than Hank Williams Sr. Right. I mean, so many people that are famous and that have an influence on us die young. They just do, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Stan outlived. I mean, Stan, Stan was around so long, he outlived people that he influenced and helped start in the business. That's amazing when you think about it, you know? Yeah. He, he lived yeah. longer than they did. But my, my personal thing I wanted to talk, I'll talk about with Stan is the funny Stan story. And then I, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to you to wrap it up, Seth. We talked earlier about the comics code and how he kind of came in and revitalized the comics, which is amazing to me as a comics guy. One of the things that was outlawed by this comic code was for something that's near and dear to my heart, which is the horror-related stuff. They, you, they weren't allowed, allowed to show vampires or werewolves or zombies or anything of the occult. So they just completely neutered horror-based comics altogether. Mm-hmm. 
of course, Stan was still was running Marvel at the time when there were writers there that wanted to resurrect, so to speak, Dracula and put him in the comics. And this is where the Blade character came from, where these stories, the Tomb of Dracula. And this was been like 71, 72, 73, somewhere in there. And they came up with a great story and they, they, they storyboarded it and everything. And they approached Stan and said, you know, we're going to be breaking the comic codes if we do this. And Stan, being the, the savvy businessman he was, said, why do we have to put the comics code on it? Right. So they just published it, the, 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 which was, I mean, he was smarter to realize this was like you said in your explanation, Seth, it was self-imposed by the comics people. And it was them that put the little stamp on the outside saying this meets the code. There was nothing, nothing that said you can't produce these kind of comics. All it said was if you produce these kind of comics, you're just not going to have this little stamp on the cover. So that's what they did. There is a documentary out there on Netflix, I believe. At least I first saw it on Netflix that was about comic books and superheroes. And I think it talks about what we were talking about in, in the early part of the show about the, the times in the 50s. And there was another instance when Stan was still writing for Marvel at the time. And it was a Spider-Man story dealing with drug use. And one of those yes. things that could not be shown under the comics code was drug issues, you know, you know, taking drugs. But Stan's argument was this is going to have a negative outlook on drug usage. You know, the, the, the kid taking drugs, bad things happen. But, right. you know, rules are rules. And Stan, I think, said, maybe not in defense of, but at least to be a fair man, I think Stan was saying that these people... With the comics code, I think they were only trying to do what they thought was the right thing. And right. then he concluded, well, if it's not going to follow the comics code, then we just won't put the comics code on the issue. And it was a very controversial thing for his time. But in the end, it's looked at as one of the better, more historic Spider-Man stories out there. Sure. So I think the fact that he had the, 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 the foresight to do that on the story like you're talking about, on, on the horror stuff. And, you know, it's, it's funny in 2018 to see what comics have become to think about comics that didn't involve, you know, the horror comics has a very, very devoted, devout following, very serious issue. Look at I me, mean, look what the Punisher morphed into to go back to mm -hmm. your, your signed comic. The Punisher never becomes that. If it wasn't guys like Stan who, I mean, I think Stan respected and understood why the comics code was put in, but he, and he worked within the system as best he could. But when he had a story to be told, he felt that was important. So just won't put it on there. <laughs> And right, I, I can't, right. but when did, when did the Comics Code Authority seal go away? Mid-80s, I think? Yeah, I think it was right about the time, maybe a little bit before, but I think it was the early 90s, maybe a little bit before Image started, or maybe a little bit after that. But I think it was sometime in the 90s, because I do distinctly remember getting comics in the 80s when I first started getting into superheroes that... I was seeing these, you know, comics codes, you know, that little box with the wings on it or something like that, that yep. signified that this, this was in compliance with the comics code. And now obviously it, it doesn't exist. I think, yeah, it was the nineties, maybe around 2000 that, you know, comics had just become such a different form of entertainment than they were in the, in the, in the fifties that I think all the titles just kind of voluntarily dropped, especially since those kids that grew up reading stuff on the comics code we're now, now running they were adults <laughs> you know they were the ones calling the shots now so yeah 
Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, it, that that's my personal indebtedness as, as a comic book guy to Stan Lee. Outside of him creating, you know, Spider-Man, which is like my number two character of all time, is the fact that he had the guts and the understanding of what could be done to bring horror comics back. And and you know me, I love Constantine, I love Blade, I love all those types of characters. I'm a horror guy, you know? And I think they're a vital part of comics and Stan's one of the reasons why they still, why they exist today because they sure as heck weren't around for a while because of the comics code. So thank you, Stan, for that. Yeah, and I don't think it's cliched to say it. Well, it probably is cliched, but I don't think it's overstating it that there's probably never going to be somebody on the level of Stanley. There may be an amazing creator who creates a huge title that becomes a, a household name, kind of like what you know Rob Liefeld did with Deadpool. That's probably a more right. modern example. But right. a guy who essentially created the universe that these characters are in, and getting back to what I was talking about with making the musical analogy, Stan was the person that popularized and started using regularly the shared universe because DC, even during their resurgence into superheroes, there wasn't any continuity between the titles. You know, no. if you read Superman, the stories began and ended in that issue of Superman, however long the arc was. Same thing with Batman and all that. So it really wasn't unlike episodic TV where a TV episode has a beginning, middle, and end to the story and then all of the shows are cookie cutter, so you could kind of watch them in any order. You know, if you watch them on syndication or something like that. Stan brought in that, okay, if something happens in this issue of Fantastic Four, it might affect Spider-Man in his title. And that right. shared universe, very much the basis on what the Marvel movies are, how, how do you say, arrested on, you know, the very foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something Stan was doing in the 60s, and it's just become a commonplace now. It's it's that shared universe concept you're talking about that Stan created. It seems to always be central centralized around New York City. Right. You've heard us talk about before. New York City is is as much a a character of the Marvel universe as Captain America or or, or Black Panther or, or whoever you know Deadpool is. That's Stan. Okay. Mm-hmm. Stan was a New York boy his whole life. He loved New York City. And he just had an opportunity as a guy you know, who was in a position that he was in to be able to to highlight that. And I think, you know, I'm a Southern boy. I'm a good old boy. And we're suspicious at best of New York City. You know, it's the ultimate big city and it's the ultimate Yankee mm-hmm. town. Yeah, there's a reason why that salsa commercial has a New York City punchline. <laughs> yeah, <now. laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, YouTube Dixie on my mind by Hank Williams Jr. That kind of explains Southerner's point of view on, on New York City. And I'll just leave it at that. But Stan was this guy who showed you the human side to New York City. Even those of us that aren't that big of fans in New York City, he would try to make you a believer. And so I respect him for that. Yeah. It, 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 if nothing else, I'm a person as a Southerner appreciates home. And appreciates that the concept of, of being home in your homestead. Well, that was New York City for Stan, and you know he didn't he didn't shy away from that. But I, 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 you made me think about that when you said the shared universe because I got to thinking. Well, it's all tied in because it's all New York City, and and that Stan's the reason why it's New York City. It, he right. just is right. There's there's a reason why creators will say when they're giving their nuggets of knowledge to other writers or other creators, write what you know because mm-hmm. you'll know what you're talking about. Right. Well, he, he, will de- he will definitely be missed, and I'll be interested to see how they handle his passing with the next entry in the Marvel 
cinematic universe, which should be what? Captain Marvel? Is that right? I believe it's Captain Marvel and then the second part to Infinity War, which I don't know about Captain Marvel, but I do remember Marvel saying that Stan did film his cameo for the fourth Avenger. So we will be seeing at least one more high-profile cameo from, right. from Stan. And quite frankly, I would not complain at all if they continue with a Stan Lee cameo in some capacity, because obviously they can digitally recreate him now. Oh, heck, or, some of his cameos you know, like Luke Cage on Netflix is just a picture on the wall. They can right. do something like that. Problem. Mm -hmm. I'll be interested to see, and this is peripheral. I know that it's in the can because it's coming out next month in December, the, the upcoming James Wan-directed Aquaman. We talked about the respect Stan had amongst DC people. Would not be shocked if there's a in memory of or for Stan thing on tied to that movie that because that's something you can easily put in right before it goes, you know, out the door. Right. You can just be tacked on to the credits. Right. And I would not be shocked. I really wouldn't. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of respect he, he generated in the comics world. And I, I think I even heard Stan say one time, but he didn't create Superman, but he sure wish he had. <laughs> yeah. Like that. yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it's just that self-deprecation. But anyway, condolences to his family. I don't believe him and his wife had any children, did they? I believe there were two children. I know he at least had a daughter okay. because I okay. think I think his daughter essentially inherited the estate, so to speak, or, you know, the 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 say in what is done with Stanley in the future. I, I could be wrong about that, but I seem to remember reading a blurb about that that basically said that that uh, he had a daughter that's essentially going to be his, whatever the word is, you know, keeper of all, you know, legal materials, so to speak. It's like Lisa Marie and, Perret and Priscilla, they run the, the Elvis estate. It's the same type of thing. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Right. All right. So, you know, condol condolences to his family. He has boatloads of fans. We're all kind of, we're all kind of hurting right now, but it's hard to think about Stan Lee and not get a smile on your face because he's mm -hmm. brought so much happiness to our lives. So you will be missed and thank you for everything. There's a gazillion geeks out there that owe you a lot of credit and a lot of thanks. A big excelsior to the Generalissimo. You know, we, we won't see him around here, but literally a lifetime is worth of memories made. So, um, all right. So, you know, condol condolences to his family. He has boatloads of fans. We're all kind of, we're all kind of hurting right now. But uh, it's hard to think about Stan Lee and not get a smile on your face because he's mm -hmm. brought so much happiness to our lives. So you will be missed, and thank you for everything. There's a gazillion geeks out there that owe you a lot of credit and a lot of thanks. A big excelsior to the Generalissimo. You know, we we won't see him around here, but you know, the, literally a lifetime is worth of memories made. So. Going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to pay another tribute. Shifting gears a little bit, I, I admit, but it's a person that was a big part of my upbringing as well, and I know train uh, is for yours too, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the late, great Roy Clark. No, your ears did not deceive you there. That was a snippet of Dueling Banjos, and while he did a lot more than play a great rendition of Dueling Banjos, that is the sound that I most associate our next tribute to. That's Roy Clark, who passed away this week at the age of five. Uh, I know the song Dueling Banjos probably gets associated the most with Deliverance, but to me, that's kind of the definitive version, him and, and Buck Trent. So 
again, kind of like Stan, what we were talking about before, you know, definitely a full life. Nobody's going to sneeze at living 85 years. And I think it's safe to say Roy Clark was probably best known for Hee Haw. Do you think that's fair to say? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I, I think uh, as a fan of country music myself, I mean, it's weird as I sit here in the asylum wearing my Iron Maiden T-shirt to hear me talk about country music and Roy Clark. But those that listen to our show regularly know I, there's a side of me that's a big country music fan. Hee Haw is for a for probably two generations of people. That is what country music is. The ones that don't know anything, they don't regularly listen to that style of music. Hee Haw was the personification and the visual presentation of what country music was, and the key components to that were Roy Clark and Buck Owens. That's you know that's if you don't know country, you knew Roy Clark and you knew Buck Owens and. I heard Roy even say in interviews that he would be walking in New York City and a guy dressed up, you know, like a hip hop guy or a punk rocker would 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 see him walk by and go, and they would go, hey, I'm a picking. And he goes, of course, I was obliged to and I'm a grinning. So mm-hmm. that was kind of, you know, people people just knew that that knew Roy for that. That's great. But there's so much more to Roy Clark than just, you know, the what is it? Probably 20 years. He haw ran. I think. It yeah. So yeah much- I think it was almost 30. I want to say it, it, it ran from the seventies through the mid nineties, I want to say. And, and, but there's so much more to Roy Clark before that. And after that, the guy was literally a virtuoso. There's no other way to describe it. He was an incredible player of a multitude of stringed instruments, most notably the banjo and, and the guitar, but he was a pretty good fiddle player too. So uh, he just, uh, he, but he also had a, a charming personality. You could tell that he was a happy man, that he just wanted to make people smile. I think that came through through all his work. Uh, some of my favorite stuff that Roy did, non-musical, uh, I, I'm sure you saw his recurring character as the cousin on the Beverly Hillbillies. I thought he was great at that. Right. Uh, he had a recurring character, Bill, God, Bill, I can't remember what his last name was, on the original Odd Couple. Mm-hmm. Where he, you know, essentially played himself. Um, but I can tell you from being a guy who did comedy for the bulk of his wrestling career, comedy is often the hardest type of acting or or, or stage work to do because there's a certain uh, element of timing involved in it, you know, and it's not easy to make people laugh. And Roy was really good at that. So, you know... <laughs> Had he had no musical talent whatsoever, I think he probably would have had a fairly decent career as, as a comedic actor. At least I think so. What do you think? Yeah, I think so, too, because while Roy Clark probably would never win any, you know, handsome man in the world awards, he had one of those looks that you remember that he's he's recognizable. He He is, I think, one of those people that the average person, even if they didn't know his name or watch Hee Haw or something like that, they probably saw him pop up in some capacity on a variety show or a talk show or in a commercial or something like that, because he did do a lot of commercials and did a lot of guest spots as guests on some of the major late night talk shows and such. So Mm -hmm. he had that kind of aura or reputation that even if people didn't know who he was, they recognized him, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And when you look at his musical career, it was a reflection of, of, the, of the complexity we're talking about. I mean, two of his biggest hits are as different as you can, as you can think of. You've got 
it, thank thank God and Greyhound, which is a straight comedy song if you listen to the words. You know, it's it's all about this. It starts out where the song, if those aren't familiar, starts out with the guy sound like he's very despondent that his his love has left him. And then it ends with this very uproarious. Then it ends with a very uproarious chorus where he's thank God and Greyhound because you're gone. She got on Greyhound and she mm-hmm. left, and he's happy about. It. So it's a total comedy song. But then you flip the script, and then his other one of his other really big hits was Yesterday When I Was Young, which is one of the most melancholy and self-introspective songs, I think, of any genre ever recorded. It's my favorite song by Roy Clark. And it's been covered by a lot of people, uh, but it's just a very, very, it's very poignant. I, I, w- I would strongly urge any of our, uh, of our listeners to, uh, if there's a million different, you know, versions on YouTube of him playing it at various points in his career. But look at it, listen to the words. It's very poignant. Anyway, so what were you going to say, Seth? I'm sorry I interrupted you. Uh, I think the best analogy that I can make for that type of song is a Bob Seger analogy, who also was a, a great singer and songwriter. Well, still is. You know, he hasn't, he hasn't left us yet. But nope. it's comparable to me for Roy Clark what Like a Rock is to Bob right. Seger because – you know, quite frankly, he was around our age when Bob Seger wrote that song. So I can see how it's kind of that equivalent to, to Roy Clark, where even if you knew that he did a lot of comedy to do a serious song like that, that's kind of the, you know, you know my way, you know, to Frank Sinatra or Paul Anka, who wrote that song. You know, right. That was his signature song. It was his signature song. And I think that that's, that's just the, you know, and that's just, his ability to tell stories through his voice. Then, but he, then he does those type of songs. You know, there's this great funny song like Thank God Greyhound. Then he does this very serious song like Yes, Down. Then he would also do instrumentals. You know, he would do like you heard Doolin Banjos. He did a great take on on the on the country standard Orange Blossom special. But then he would could also play flamenco guitar, which is a you know a very difficult form of of nylon you know finger picking. What was it? Uh, how you pronounce it? Mang- Manguela? Is that how you pronounce yeah, it? it was a big yeah, I, 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 he did a pretty famous rendition on an episode of The Odd Couple. Right, uh, and and that's that's a completely different style. You know, I, I've heard him play, you know, fiddle before, and he's played it like a country fiddle. But then I've heard him play classical music. You know, you know, sonatas and concertos by famous composers. So. He was a virtuoso. There's no doubt. And my dad used to always talk about. He goes, it always amazed him that this. I mean, and I'm not. I'm not speaking ill of the dead. He was a bit on the heavy side. He was never like morbidly obese, but he was a bit on a chunky, chubby. Right. And my dad would say to see those little chubby fingers fly like that on the fretboard was just amazed him. I have a personal story about Roy. I told you this story off mic. I figure I'll share it with our listeners now. My mother was actually the country music fan in the family. She's where I get the, 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 my love of country music is from my mother. And she got one tickets on one of the country stations here in Greenville. When I was a kid, I was probably 11 or 12 years old, uh, to go to a concert. It was a triple bill. It was Roy Clark, Sylvia, who I doubt many of our listeners know, unless they're big country fans. She was kind of a one or two hit wonder in the, in the eighties. Yeah, nobody is the song that I recall. You know, you're nobody called mm-hmm. today. Right. And then the third of this trip was B.J. Thomas, who most famously is known, probably for most of our listeners, as Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head from Butch Casting, the Sundance Kid. Another big hit of his was, Hey, Won't You Play Another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong song, which 
for trivia's sake, is still the longest title of any song to go to number one in the charts. I think that's kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> to give you an idea of, of the kind of, of, of vocal talent B.J. Thomas had besides those country hits in the 60s and 70s, he went on to play Jean Valjean at Les Miserables on Broadway for about a six-year run. So this he's, he's a legit vocalist. And like I said, Roy was the other act. And so my mother, I can't remember how many tickets it was she won, but she took my father and I to, to, to Columbia. It wasn't here in Greenville. We had to drive two hours to Columbia to the Capitol. And the show was at Carolina Coliseum, which was the old basketball arena for the University of South Carolina. It was a big building. It seated probably about 10, 12,000 for basketball games, probably about eight or 9,000 for a concert when you have, you know, because you're going to lose seats with staging and lighting and whatnot. And if I remember right, B.J. Thomas was the opening act or the first act. And so he came out and he did a set. He did great. It was, I enjoyed it. I'm a big B.J. Thomas fan. Love his voice. And then Sylvia came out to be the second act. And that, of course, would leave Roy to be the headliner. It makes sense if you, if you know your history. And apparently they started having, they, they were having some kind of technical difficulty during Sylvia's set. The mics kept getting static and they kept cutting out. And she was... Even as an 11 or 12-year-old kid, I could, I could tell she was very much a prima donna and very unprofessional and just kind of stormed off stage, upset, you know. And, and I can tell you, being a performer myself, technical things happen from time to time. No matter how good your crew is, how good your equipment is, things will happen, you know. But Yeah, because nothing I, ever goes wrong at, at all in this podcast. We never have any technical <laughs> difficulties. <laughs> exactly. I mean, just it is what it is. And... You know, the, the audience is kind of looking around because we didn't pay anything besides the gas to drive down there because we won, mom had won the tickets on the on the radio station. But I know that the vast majority of the people there had paid good hard-earned money to come see this show. And they don't know whether to be upset because of technical difficulty or be upset because one of the performers they pay to see is kind of showing a rear end. But the constant professional he is, an entertainer he is. And of course, this goes back to his youth because Roy broke into the music business with his father, who was also a, a picker and a player and, and, and was performing at a very young age. So he'd been around a long time and was an old pro. And he came on stage and just, there's no mic because the mics are, are not working. That's the problem. He just knew how to carry his voice and just said, hey, look, we're having some problems with the mics and the speakers. So I just thought I'd come out here and keep you all busy while these guys are working really hard to get our sound equipment working back for you. And he did a 20-minute unscheduled set. Of him, he didn't do any singing because, you know, there was no mics and it was a big building, but he played guitar and he played fiddle and he played banjo and he played mandolin and he played piano. This guy just played like eight different instruments for 20 minutes, different things and just entertaining, told some jokes and we shouted some jokes and we, they were funny and we laughed. And, you know, that stuck with me as a young man who was just beginning to think about moving into a, a, a line of work that would involve performing which of course came later, a few years later, when I joined my grandfather's jazz band and I became a musician myself that performed. And then I moved into wrestling and performed in that arena. That, that memory of Roy Clark has always stuck with me of like how to be a professional. The, 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 old, the old adage, the show must go on. You know, mm -hmm. he like lived it that night and was, didn't seem, now he might've been, but he, he sure as heck didn't show it to the crowd. He didn't seem annoyed. He didn't seem angry. He just like, it is what it is. You know, these people paid their hard-earned money to be entertained. And, and by gosh, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to take this talent that, this, that that I've been given and that I've developed, and I'm going to use it to entertain them because that's what they paid for. 
And that that memory has always stuck in my head in every form of performance I've ever done since then. So he, you know, Roy had a very personal, indelible influence on me just from that one 20 minute set. And, you know, looking back on it now, it, it, it it's even more stark because he's no longer with us. The professionalism it showed, but also just the, the raw musicianship, the fact I can't imagine like no rehearsal going out and doing what he did for 20 minutes like that on the, on the cold. I mean, you're not, you, you yourself said you're not, you're not much of a player, but you do play some. So I'm sure you get, you have a concept, Seth, of, of how difficult that something like that would be to pull off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I probably would have stopped after one or two songs because I wouldn't know what to do next, if that makes any right. sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, it's not like you're going to be taking requests. And I think he was taking requests at one point. So, you know, <laughs> it's just, just an, an amazing, amazing talent. Another, I talked to some of my friends in the music industry and, and, and the music field when this news broke a few days ago. And a couple of them are, are guitarists. And, and, and one of them who's a long, long time friend of mine, who, who currently teaches music theory at our local fine arts academy. He said, you know, Roy was one of those guys. He put Chet Atkins in this category and a few others, uh, Andre Segovia. They were guys, he said, that he, he talked about his tone and how, like, they were just effortless. Everything that Roy Clark did, like, he wasn't even trying. And every note was exactly where it was supposed to be, exactly when it was supposed to be there. It was so clean. It was so pure. And I can tell you as a musician there's a tendency to be just quarter quarter beat early or quarter beat late when it comes to rhythmic patterns or to be a just you know a quarter tone off one way or the other sharp or flat boy was never that he was always on everything every note and when you consider how fast he played some of these pieces that he played it just just blows your mind it just is amazing he was truly a virtuoso yeah and i remember hearing or seeing one of his shows, I think it was one of those ensemble things, but he was paired with another musician who I'm, I'm assuming was probably younger than me, even at the time, because this would have been like the early 2000s, I want to say. And I don't know if it was an impromptu line. It's very possible he planned it. But the joke that was said, if all else fails, we can just uh, do the Macarena or something to that effect. And, <laughs> and Roy Clark just completely deadpanned without missing a beat, and he had that perfect expression on his face as he looks at the guy and says, macadamia? Macadamia is a kind of nut, and you certainly qualify. And then he goes back into, <laughs> in, into the next, uh, the next song. That's, that's the comedic timing I'm talking about. You, you, you're born with it. I mean, it, you can't develop it. It's just there, you know? And, and I, I, there's a lot of guitarists that I have a lot of respect for because I'm not a very good guitarist myself. I'm much more of a vocalist. There are a lot of guys that I think a lot of guitar players nowadays praise, and, and, and rightfully so. They can't hold a candle to what Roy could do. That, that's just my opinion. I, that's how highly I think of, of, of Roy Clark. You know, And I'm talking the guys that are technically wow. I'm talking like the Yngwie Malmsteen guys, guys of that level that they, they may be better guitarists or better musicians, like theoretically speaking, than Roy Clark. But I don't think they hold a candle to him as a performer. And I don't think they hold a candle to him in, in, in just being well-rounded. I mean, I love Yngwie Malmsteen, and he blows me away. But hand him a banjo and see what he does. And if you know anything about playing stringed instruments, uh, yes, they're similar in the sense that they have strings. But playing the fiddle, 
is very different than playing the guitar, and playing the guitar is very different than playing the banjo. And he did all three at virtuosic level. So what does that tell you, right? Yeah, yeah, it definitely says a lot. And obviously there's going to be those years of hee-haw that he was on. So it's a pretty safe bet that there are going to be future generations that will be entertained by Roy even after his passing. One thing that I thought was interesting about Roy Clark, I'd seen this on Facebook, and I haven't had time to do the research to see if it's true, but I don't see any reason why somebody would, would uh, lie about this. It was a Facebook page for Hank Williams Sr. I don't think it's an official one, but it's that kind of tribute page to very old classic country music. And apparently one of Roy's earlier gigs was playing behind Hank Williams Sr. He was essentially part of a yes. band for, for Hank Williams Sr. Remember, this is Sr., not Hank Williams Jr., which he saw on the Monday Night Football songs, or Hank Three, who's you know doing his own own thing now, both country and metal. But Hank Williams Sr., who passed in 1953, New Year's Day 1953 is when Hank Williams Sr. passed. So mm-hmm. that means at the latest, Rory would have been 19 years old or so, because Rory was born in 1933. And so what I'm getting at is I, when looking up Roy Clark stuff after hearing of his passing, you know, trying to find something to uh, play or share with listeners or readers uh, on Facebook, you know, to give an, a, an example of his talent, he was playing, I'm pretty sure he was just the guest of the show, but it was a Brad Paisley concert and he was playing alongside Brad Paisley. And I'm not the biggest pop country music fan. I know, Train, you know that about me, and I'm sure just about anybody who knows me knows that I am. But Brad Paisley's a really good guitar player. And yes, yes. when you think about it, how many musicians can say that they played alongside Hank Williams Sr. and Brad Paisley? I don't think that list is very long. If there's somebody else that has those two names on their resume, I'd like to see them. Well, I can one-up you on even Hank Sr., I know one of Roy's, for some of the research I did, one of the first paying gigs he had, like touring gigs as a background as a background musician, was in the background band for Hank Thompson. Okay. For those that don't know, don't know, don't know country music like me and Seth do, there were two Hanks that predated Hank Sr., Hank Thompson and Hank Snow. These are guys, these are country acts in the 40s. I mean, he was like a 16-year-old kid when he was playing for him. Like I said, he got started at like 11 years old because his father played. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, Hank, Hank, Hank Sr., he's, he's Hank Sr. Hank, Hank Williams Sr. is the Elvis of country music. Anybody who knows country music will tell you that. But uh, there are two Hanks that predate Hank, Hank Sr., and he played with one of them. So what's the, wow, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. There's, 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 there's mev- many Hanks and there's two Merles. A lot of, most of y'all know Merle Haggard. There's a Merle Travis too, but we will do a show on country music one day in his history. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So. I definitely have those years of hee-haw in my memory bank, so to speak, because uh, to kind of give you an idea, and anybody who knows me knows this is not going to seem like much of a stretch. When I was watching hee-haw, it was paired on the same channel in syndication with Sha Na Na. So country wow. music from hee-haw and doo-wop music from Sha Na Na, that's a very integral part of my kind of grade school upbringing. Yeah, you know, I I'd be remiss if, we were, if I didn't bring this up. Since we're, since we're talking about hee haw, we've been sitting here praising how great a, a, a picker that Roy Clark was, and obviously he was. His vocal skills weren't bad either. As a vocalist myself, one of my favorite parts of hee haw was they didn't do it every episode, but 
about every two to three episodes, they would have an old-timey gospel male quartet on there. And Roy was would usually sing baritone. It was usually Roy Buck, Grandpa Jones, and Arthur Aubrey. I can't remember what his name was. It was, it was a fourth gentleman. And they were just gorgeous. I mean, just beautiful mm-hmm. harmony. And uh, if you know male quartets, baritone is really one of the key. The, it, that's that's the one voice part in a, in, a, in a four part, you know, in a male quartet that really makes the chord, makes the harmony. And uh, that was Roy's part. I mean, so uh, he was a true performer. He was a true musician. He, he you know, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Like I said, I have, I, to this day, I have the, the, the impact he had on me from that one show I saw of him as a performer is amazing. And I don't think I ever saw an interview with Roy Clark where he didn't have a smile on his face and just looked like a guy who was happy to be alive. And I yeah. think that uh, something to be said for that too, you know? There you go. I know this episode was a little longer than most because it was called together from two shows, not just one. But not only was Stanley a big part of my fandom, so was Roy Clark growing up uh, listening to country music and bluegrass and stuff like that. So that was a, uh, from a personal standpoint, I think one of the uh, more touching shows that we did paying tribute to him. But next up, it's going to be day 27 for Napod Pomo. We will be going back to the lesser-known geek Hall of Fame, where Train and I will talk about Mandrake the Magician, who is another one of those firsts in comic and hero-type characters. We'll go into that tomorrow, day 27 of Anapod Pomo. We will look at Mandrake the Magician. This has been Geekful Radio. You can find us at geekfulradio.com. All over the podcast platforms you're choosing, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, pretty much you name it. Anywhere you can find podcasts, you can find Geekful Radio. Just do a search. You'll find all of our shows, all of our family shows. And if you're into the world of pro wrestling, you can find us also at Classic Wrestling Memories, where we dedicate shows to the days of yesteryear in pro wrestling. Give us a follow. Give us a review. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know what we can do better. I'm always looking for ways to improve this show, and I love hearing feedback from anybody that, that listens, especially when it's genuine. You know, I'd rather hear something that's genuinely negative than falsely positive. So kind of power down the studio here in Geekville Radio, and we'll talk to you folks again tomorrow talking Mandrake the Magician. Geekville Radio is not sponsored or endorsed by any product or company unless specifically stated. The views expressed by the host and or guests are purely their own and do not represent the views of geekvilleradio.com, a1-wrestling.com, or any affiliates. Some media used on Geekville Radio is the respective copyright of its publishers, all rights reserved. DC movie. I love cameos. Not now, Stanley. Excelsior.